invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. Very few words, but words that are pregnant with much meaning. We've been studying the Ten Commandments. We cracked open the Ninth Commandment last Lord's Day. We return to it today. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, who is it that uttered this ninth word in the Decalogue? It's none other than the Lord God himself, who loves truth and therefore hates lying. So the Bible teaches many places. Proverbs 6, 16 and following. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And among those seven things which he hates and are an abomination to him are a lying tongue and a false witness who bears lies, who utters lies. We see the same thing in Proverbs 12 and verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. We should take these words very seriously. If we're engaged in things that the Lord hates, we should be very fearful. Indeed, if we're engaged in things that the Lord hates, we need to run to Him and ask forgiveness of those things that are an abomination to Him. Not only does God hate lying, He hates and will destroy those given to lying. Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before thine eyes. Thou dost hate all who do iniquity. Thou dost destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Now lest we think of lying as but a trifle, Know that God will punish all liars forever in hell. The Bible speaks very plainly about this. Revelation 22 and verse 15. Outside, that is outside heaven. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters. And We might say, well, I guess we should expect that. But he concludes with these words, And everyone who loves and practices lying. Revelation 21 and verse 8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So if we were just left with those passages, we should fear. Indeed, we should live in abject dread of the day in which we shall have to answer for our lying deeds. But bless God, there is hope for all liars who turn from their falsehood in repentance to embrace Him who is the truth. He will forgive them. He will forgive you. He will give you new heart, a new heart that loves the truth, after reading a, giving a litany of sins that will characterize those who will not enter the kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. God forgives liars. Come to Him in Jesus Christ. As we saw last Lord's Day, there wasn't one of us that came forth from our mother's womb without speaking lies. We are liars 
in our conception, we're liars in our birth, we're liars in our lives. So if you're a Christian, you love the truth and you hate lying. Again, the Bible so plainly teaches. Proverbs 13 and verse 5. A righteous man hates falsehood. Because it's opposite to him who seeks to live by the truth. Proverbs 30 and verse 8. Keep deception and lies far from me. Psalm 119, verse 163. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love thy law. Verse 29. Remove the false way from me, and graciously grant me thy law. We tend to think of lying in very, in very compact terms, very disjointed terms. We think about individual lies, but we live a life of lying. We are liars by nature, not just by practice, but by our very condition outside of Christ. And we have that remain, remaining sin within us. And the Bible warns us against being hypocrites who profess to love the truth and yet walk in disobedience to God's law, proving that we are liars and that the truth is not in us. The Apostle John makes this plain, 1 John 1 and verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, that is with Christ, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're living a lie. In chapter 2 of 1 John, in verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him, I've become a Christian, and does not keep his commandments, and one of those is the ninth commandment, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He may say it's in him, but in fact, by his life, he demonstrates it's not. Commenting on 1 John 2 and verse 4, Mr. Barnes observes the grand lie perpetrated by the antinomian professing Christian, the one who says he loves God but does not love his law. Barnes says, such a profession, that is, of professing to know the truth and love the truth, such a profession is a falsehood, because there can be no true religion where one does not obey the law of God. Simply put, our walk, even more than our talk, demonstrates what we believe. And therefore I suggest to you that the Ninth Commandment is a litmus test for all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's not a profession of truth, but it is a lifestyle of truth that proves that we know the Lord and that the truth is in us. So last week, we considered basic questions raised by the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We asked three questions. What is a witness? What does it mean to bear witness? And we saw that a witness is ordinarily used of a person or an object that provides testimony. We saw that it was used of a heap of rocks that witnessed the covenant between Jacob and Laban. A witness is one who solemnly testifies in a legal or business transaction, and a witness confirms that Jehovah is the only God against the claim of those who say there are false gods, and that a witness gives a formal testimony in a law court. And we saw secondly, as we answered the question, what is a witness? What does it mean to bear false witness? Not just of a person or an object who provides testimony in a general sense, but a witness is someone who testifies to the truth of Christ in the gospel. And we saw that the triune God is witness to Christ and to the truthfulness of the gospel. That the apostles were witnesses who testified to the truth of the gospel, both by word and by miracle. And then we saw that all Christians are witnesses who are to testify to the truth of Christ and the reality of the gospel. And then we asked the question, what does it mean to bear false witness? It means to knowingly testify to something that, that's to, to state the truth of it, but, but actually be, you're bearing 
Let me back up a little bit. I've got my tang all tunneled up here. You know what you're saying is a lie, but you're saying it's the truth. Knowingly, bearing false witness, stating a lie. Well, who is my neighbor against whom I must not bear false witness? Well, first, our Christian brethren are our neighbors. Spiritually speaking, they are the closest of our neighbors. But we saw that all men are our neighbors. Whether they're Christians or non-Christians, whether they're family or not family, whether they're friend or whether they're foe, we are to bear true witness to all men. We're not to bear any kind of false witness and use an excuse, well, he's my enemy, and therefore I don't have to tell the truth about him. Well, that brings us this morning to two essential concerns presumed in the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We're going to look at two essential concerns presumed in the Ninth Commandment, and then we're going to look at the wide practical implications of the Ninth Commandment briefly from the Westminster Larger Catechism. So two essential concerns presumed in the Ninth Commandment. Two basic concerns form the very heart of obedience to the Ninth Commandment. The first is this. The Ninth Commandment requires of us an unqualified, thoroughgoing commitment to truth in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our actions. Second, understanding our duty to be committed to honesty and integrity in all things. The Ninth Commandment requires us to be truthful with and to, speak, and to seek the welfare of our neighbor. To, to speak and live so that our neighbor is benefited. Now, the Ninth Commandment had authority over our first father, Adam, born in innocence. It was written upon his heart. He was duty-bound to live a life of truth before God and before men. But he believed a lie, he embraced a lie, started to live a lie when he listened to the serpent lie about God. And he became a child, spiritually speaking, of the serpent when he sinned. And therefore we are all born in sin. We speak with unruly tongues. We live dishonest lives. Why? Because we have lawless, deceitful hearts. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are spiritual when in fact we are carnal. Our tongues reveal the condition of our hearts and the reality of our profession. James spends much time talking about this in his epistle. He says in chapter 1 and verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not go to church every Sunday and does not read his Bible and does not pray and does not give tithes and all, is that what James says? No. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now, brethren, there's a word in there for every one of us, is there not? The Ninth Commandment addresses our most unruly faculty, that is our tongue. Old Archbishop Layton observes, The Apostle St. James, in that sharp but most true censure of the tongue, might well call it an unruly evil. There are but ten precepts or words of the law of God, and you see two of them, so far as concerns the outward organ and vent of the sins, they're forbidden. To keep it in order... One in the first table, and that of course is the third commandment, and this other in the second table, that is the ninth commandment, as being ready to fly out both against God and man, if thus not bridled. He goes on to say, the end of this commandment is to guard the good name of men from injury as the eighth does his goods. Do not steal. This possession 
that is of a good name, being no less, yea, more precious than the other. And because the great robber and murderer of a good name is the mischievous, distracting tongue acted by a malignant heart, it requires in the heart a charitable tenderness of the good name of our brethren. And that will certainly prove truth and charitable speech in the tongue. This ninth commandment speaks especially to me. My father's been dead for almost 50 years. And I still remember certain things that he said. He wasn't a Christian, but he often spoke things that were true. He was a very good observer of human nature, especially his eldest child, this man's nature. And he said to me, he wasn't a prophet, but he said, Steve, your tongue, and thus you get a handle on it, is going to get you in more trouble than you know. Brethren, we must guard our tongues. We must guard our tongues if we would not injure, but rather honor our neighbor. But there is an even more basic organ we must guard. If we would guard our tongues, we must first guard our hearts. We must first guard our hearts. What did Jesus say? For the mouth speaks that which what? Fills the heart. We regurgitate, if I might put it that way, out of our mouths those things which are in our hearts. Proverbs 4 and verse 23, beginning, speaks about the heart and its impact upon our actions. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Keep it with all keeping. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. We've got to watch over our heart first. And notice what he goes on to say in verse 24. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious lips far from you. You see, devious lips and a, de and a deceptive mouth, where do they come from? They come from the heart. The heart informs the mouth. Jesus said, for out of the heart, Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. See, we have unholy heartburn sometimes and it erupts into our mouths and, and we say things that defame and harm other people. Jesus points out the, ne the necessary relationship between, between the heart and the tongue. In another place, when addressing religious hypocrites... What fills our mouth necessarily comes out, or fills our hearts, comes out of our mouth. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verses 34 and 35, You brood of vipers! Your sons of snakes, that's what you are. And let me tell you why. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? Bad men can't really say good things. Oh, outwardly, anyway, but it doesn't arise, arise out of a good heart. What does Jesus say? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man, man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Out of the heart comes the words on the tongue. So those are the two essential concerns presumed in the Ninth Commandment. We're to speak the truth and we're to look to speak the truth for the welfare of our neighbor. Now, thirdly, this morning, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time, save a few applications at the end, on the wide practical implications of the Ninth Commandment. The wide practical implications of the Ninth Commandment. Again, I 
refer to David's statement in Psalm 119, verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection. He says, I've seen human perfection. It has limits. But he says, thy commandment is exceedingly broad. It touches areas of life, areas of speech, areas of thought. It plumbs the depths of our thoughts, our speech, our actions. How broad are the practical implications of the Ninth Commandment? Our superficial notions of obedience to the Ninth Commandment can hardly begin to scratch the surface of its vast depths. As we noted last time, if the prohibition of the Ninth Commandment only regulated speech in a law court, it would apply to very, very few of us. How many of us have been in a law court? How many of us have been called on the witness stand and were required to give testimony? I wouldn't see very many hands, I think, if I asked. Well, if it did, the vast majority of people would think themselves innocent of breaking the Ninth Commandment. I haven't borne false witness. But this law is far broader than simply a prohibition against perjury. This commandment requires honesty in thought, word, and deed. Fact is, each one of us has broken this commandment times without number, often unwittingly and often knowingly, and then making excuses for it. As one brother has observed, excuses are the lies that we tell ourselves. Our excuses themselves are violations of the command. The Bible teaches that life and death are in the power of the tongue. We may use our tongues to tear down. We may use our tongues to build up. Brethren, tongue sins are not little sins. The old adage I learned as a boy is not true. You know it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Well, what have you been most deeply hurt by? Sticks and stones or by words? We can deeply, we can inflict deep wounds with our words. We think about the relationships that have suffered in the past. It's often been because we haven't bridled our tongues. What flows easily off our tongues can destroy lives. Well, you may try to justify yourself by saying, Well, what I, what I said was true, and therefore I was right to say what I said. I wasn't lying. Well, what you said may be factually correct, but the question to be answered is wider than, is what you said factual? We are to ask, is what I said helpful or hurtful? We will see in a future study that there are many times when our duty to speak the truth may seem hurtful, but is actually helpful. And when remaining silent would be a violation of the Ninth Commandment, but that awaits next week's message. So this morning, for the rest of our time, let us consider the duties required by the Ninth Commandment. The Westminster Larger Catechism provides an extensive list of the duties required and the sins forbidden by the Ninth Commandment. And in their exposition of the Ten Commandments, our Puritan forebears, the authors of the Catechism, ordinarily record more sins forbidden than duties required. And I think the reason for this is not hard to discover. The duties of God's commandments tend to be simple and uncomplicated. But sin is devious, it's complex, 
Disobedience involves many detours from the narrow road. Indeed, did not Solomon say in in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29, God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices, many detours from the road of truth. As in his treatment of the other commandments, so here, if you have a copy of the the Catechism, I put one on the back table for those that want them, you'll notice that the vices forbidden exceed the virtues commanded by almost two to one. Now this morning we will consider a general survey of the duties or virtues required by the Ninth Commandment. And next time, God willing, we'll survey the sins or vices forbidden. And if I'm not going to make a fourth message out of this, I'll have to be very select and succinct. And then we will conclude our our study of the Ninth Commandment with some naughty issues, not N-A-U-G-H-T-Y, but K-N-O-T-T-Y, some naughty questions about bearing a truthful witness in this twisted world when obedience to this Ninth Commandment might seem difficult, if not impossible. Well, what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are, first, preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Let's take this apart. Our overall duty is to preserve and promote truth between ourselves and others, and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Let's look at our responsibility to our neighbor first of all. And that is appearing and standing for the truth. We must stand for the truth. We must stand behind the truth. We must stand on the truth. Standing, what does that mean? Well, standing boldly for and unashamedly speaking the truth on behalf of all, especially those who have no standing or voice, like for children and the handicapped and those babies that are facing possibly abortion. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, Open your mouth for the dumb. That means those who can't speak, children. Open your mouth for the dumb. For the rights of all the unfortunate. You see, they can't speak for themselves. They require an advocate, someone to stand for them. Standing for the truth, for them. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. You see, we have a a duty to stand openly and unashamedly and boldly for the truth, especially for those who are being injured by lies. How are we to do that? Well, from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully, speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever. That's the spirit and wide scope of speaking the truth. What does this mean practically? Well, speaking the truth in our ordinary interactions with others. Saying what we mean and meaning what we say. Not speaking equivocally so people can understand what you're saying one way or another way. Let them take it as they will. No, speak very plainly and pointedly the truth so no one can misunderstand what you say. Spurgeon was talking with a student. And the student said, Shouldn't we all preach so that everyone can understand what we're saying? Mr. Spurgeon said, Yes, but there's more. So speak as men cannot misunderstand what you're saying. And that's the the idea here. We're to be very plain. Keeping our promises one way. 2 Corinthians 7 or 1 verses 17 and 18. Paul writes back, he's defending himself against his detractors there in the Corinthian church that said he's a flip-flopper. He says one thing and he means another. 
Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this. Was I? Or that which purpose do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes and no, and no at the same time? That I don't know what I'm saying? But, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. No, it's either yes or it's no. It's not both at the same time. Brother, underlying here is, is the fact that our word is our bond. We're to be trustworthy, dependable people. When we say something, people can trust what we're saying. Let us be people of our word. Furthermore, speaking in a gracious way when defending truth against error. Second, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We're not to be like them. We're not to be tricksters and hucksters that use the word and use it to tell lies and to, and to do mischief. No, but speaking the truth in love. And this speaking the truth in love, I think in the context here, is addressing those, those tricksters of men, those crafty men, those deceitful schemers. We're to point them to the truth. We're to speak the truth. And we're to do it in a loving way. And in so doing, Paul says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in matters of faith and contending for the gospel of Christ. We're to be very plain spoken in what we believe. Think of the three Hebrew young men before Nebuchadnezzar. They would not bow down to that statue. They would not engage in idolatry. And they were very plain and respectful at the same time. You command us to do this, we're not going to do it. And God is going to deliver us one way or another. He's either going to keep us in the flames or He's going to take us through the flames. But we're not going to bow down to this image that you have made. And you think of Antipas in the Smyrna church. It says of him in Revelation 2 and verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast Hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. When things were hot, he stood for the truth. You're standing for the truth. Continue to do so. Even if it costs you your life. Because you're my witnesses. I encourage you to read Fox's book of Martyrs. Read J.C. Ryle's book on the English reformers called Light from Old Times, those that were burned in the Marian fires. The apostles, they stood for the truth when forbidden to preach Christ. Acts 4, verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said, see, they, forbid, they were forbidden to speak Christ. Say no more of this one whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We know what our responsibility is. Verse 20, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. This is the truth and you need to hear it. And we're not going to stop saying it. We see their undaunted commitment to the gospel. They weren't going to be swerved. That's the way we must be. The preserving, furthermore, the preserving and promoting of the good name of our neighbor. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment. Good name. It's better than the most expensive, best smelling perfume. Brethren, we are our brother's keeper. We're the keeper of his good name even. We're to be committed to honoring it and advancing His good name in the earth. And what does that mean? Practically, we are to have a charitable esteem of our neighbors. A charitable, a loving esteem of our neighbors. A kindly attitude toward them. Putting the best construction on 
doubtful matters. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We're not quick to listen and believe something that's said that would put them in a bad light. And therefore, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. And we see the text there, Third John, verses 3 and 4. John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. He rejoices with them. He doesn't think a sconce at them. He knows about their remaining sins, their trials and their challenges. But he hears that they're walking in the truth, and that makes him dance. He's excited. He's happy about that. Furthermore, sorrowing for and covering their infirmities. Grieved over them. Not gloating about them. Aha! No, not gloating, but grieving over their sins and infirmities. Proverbs 17, verse 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love. He covers over it with the blanket of secrecy. He doesn't take it and run through the neighborhood and tell everybody about it. You know, we can jack ourselves up pretty high and standing on the shoulders of those that we're grinding into the ground. It's, no, no, no. No, you sorrow. You cover their infirmities. You don't go broadcasting them. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Furthermore, freely acknowledging Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency. Freely acknowledging their gifts and graces, not being jealous of them, not owning them grudgingly, but gladly. Defending their innocency, standing with them. We see a couple of wonderful illustrations of this in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 12, or 22 and verse 14. Then Ahimelech, he was the priest there in Nob. Then Ahimelech answered the king, Saul. Saul came looking for David, you remember. Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He could have been shaking in his boots, and he could have been tempted to badmouth David to save his own life, because Saul was there with his armies, and he was seeing red, and Abimelech could see that. Or Ahimelech could see that. Who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Line them all out. You tell me, which one of them is as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law. Remember who he is. He's in in your family by way of marriage. Who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house. Who are you going after here? Think about it. I just read you an objective resume of David. Why are you after him like you are? 1 Samuel 20 and verse 32. His own son has to reprove his father. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he, why should David be put to death? What has he done? He hasn't done anything deserving the axe. Why do you want to kill him? He's the king's best friend. Why are you treating him as your greatest enemy? Then a ready receiving of a good report and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them. No, we see in 1 Corinthians 13 that we're not to rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in the truth. And we... We're to believe all things. We're to hope all things. Psalm 15 and verse 3. The righteous man, the one who's going to heaven, the godly person. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend. He doesn't get on the bandwagon of anti-whoever. and beats that gong. No, he doesn't do that. Furthermore, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, slanders, discouraging them. 
not silently listening to them. For the sake of time, we're going to have to move along more quickly. He who secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy, says God. Furthermore, the preserving and promoting of the good name of ourselves. You know, some people, when I was a young guy, I didn't seem to care about my name. My dad says, you're a nutter. You're supposed to act like a nutter. You're dragging our family name through the mud by what you're doing, the way you're living. I didn't realize that a good name is to be desired more than riches. How important, how, how valuable is a fat bank account if you have a name that's been drugged through the slums? Favor is better than silver and gold. Therefore, we're to love and care for our own name. We're to defend it when the need requires. And we see Jesus, when he was, he was slandered as having a demon, he said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And we're to keep lawful promises. A righteous man swears to his own hurt and does not change. Psalm 15 and verse 4. And we're to study and practice whatever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. We're to fill our minds with worthy thoughts. You know the text, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and of anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. See, if we would keep our speech honorable and honest, it requires brainwashing. Brainwashing with the truth. Brainwashing with the truth by the Spirit of God. We need continual purging and purifying of our minds. Well, what does this say to us by way of concluding applications? Three things. First of all, if we would obey the Ninth Commandment, let us be careful not to listen to slander. If we would speak only the truth and only what advances our neighbor's good name and reputation, let us be careful what we listen to or our ears may be poisoned against him. Proverbs 4, verses 23 and 24. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious lips far from you. We have to guard our hearts. And brethren, if we would put a bridle on our lips, we must diligently guard our hearts. And if we would guard our hearts, we must diligently and deliberately protect our ears. You know the little children's ditty, and it pow- packs a powerful punch For us adults as well, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Because what goes in our ears goes down into our hearts, and it percolates there. You know the old adage, garbage in, what? Garbage out. Listening to an evil report has a way of embittering our hearts against that person. Listen to Proverbs 18 and verse 8. The words of a whisperer, they don't shout it. They come alongside you and say, you know, have you heard about this or that? About so and Yeah, come here, let me tell you. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Charles Bridges, very perceptive comments. He says, We may seem to make light of the tale brought to our ears and wholly to despise it, but the subtle poison has worked. That's why in in courtrooms, sometimes an attorney 
defense attorney or a prosecuting attorney will stand up and say something that ends up receiving the gavel. Disregard what he just said. How can you disregard it completely? It's gone into your ears. And now you're starting to think about it. But the subtle poison has worked. Suppose it should be true. Perhaps, though it may be exaggerated, there may be some ground for it. The thought indulged only for a moment brings suspicion, distrust, coldness, and often it ends in the separation of chief friends. So dangerous a member in the frame is the tongue without stern, determined control. Poison in the heart has a way of erupting on the tongue. Brethren, let us set guard over our ears or our hearts will become polluted by gossip. Number of statements about gossip certainly true. Gossip is the art of confessing another person's sins. Gossip is what no one claims to like, but what everybody enjoys. Boy, isn't that telling on us? Here's the point. You cannot have a gossiping tongue unless you have gossiping ears. Now, it may seem rude to even kindly ask a person to cease their juicy revelation about someone's sins or failures. But brethren, we owe it to our hearts, we owe it to our neighbor to protect our ears. And if we aren't careful, we will listen and then pass along that juicy bit of poison to others. How many times have we done that? Secondly, if we would obey the ninth commandment, let us keep our minds filled with wholesome thoughts. Philippians 4.8 again. Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. We're to think on those things. It doesn't say whatever is tantalizing, whatever is tasty, whatever is juicy. We are what we think. And if we would speak well of others, we must first think well of them. And if we would think well of others, especially those of whom we are tempted to think unkind thoughts, we must consciously fill our minds with things that would crowd out and reprove evil thoughts and replace them with good and kindly thoughts. Kind of holy hydrology. You push down here. And it comes up over there. You push these things down in our hearts. They come up in repentance. We think about good things. We fill our minds with those things. We chase out those evil thoughts. Mr. Burkett comments on the words, whatsoever things are lovely and of good report, and says what this means. He says, an easiness to pardon, readiness to oblige, compassion to the afflicted, liberality to the distressed, sweetness of conversation, without gall and bitterness. These are of universal esteem with mankind and soften the most savage tempers and dispositions. You see, even unconverted people appreciate a godly tongue. Thirdly, finally, if we would obey the ninth commandment by filling our minds with wholesome thoughts, let us fix our focus upon our gracious Lord. Honeyed words fell from his lips. And even when he had to speak words of reproof, it always gained the conscience of those that heard. 
Brethren, how can we look intently upon Christ and then speak ill of others? We can't. Not unless we're gross hypocrites. And in fact, if we're looking to Christ, that alone will put a bridle upon our lips. It will check our tongues. It will humble our hearts. The problem is our eyes are on ourselves or other people or other things and not on Christ. And then our our tongues are given free reign and they run all over the earth and do evil. You see, if our eyes are fixed upon our lovely Savior, our lips will speak that which pleases Him and does good to others. Oh, may God make us that kind of people. May He give us blood-washed tongues that we might use those tongues for good and not for ill. Let's pray. Father, how can anyone preach or anyone hear a message like this and not be found out when the faithful finger of Christ is pointed at our chest? We have to say, I am the man. And therefore, we pray, O God, you would take these things that were said this morning and as they accord with truth, you would write them with the omnipotent finger of your grace upon the fleshy tables of our own hearts that you would make us to be penitent people. You would give us a firm resolve to speak only those things which are unto edification. And even when we may be called to speak truth, and it may be a difficult truth that must be spoken and cannot be hidden, that we would do so in a gracious way. So Lord, help us in all of these things. Forgive us of our many sins in the past. Help us, we pray, Uh, to, to guard our tongues so that when we do speak, it will be good for, for others to hear and it would bring glory to your name. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.